Are peanut butter and jelly Twinkies in our future? Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Full Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Jason Moser for a food-centered Monday. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing great. This is my kind of show, Deidre. How are you? <laughs> I thought I thought about that being your kind of show, too, because we've got some breaking uh, M&A Monday news. We always like a good mergers and acquisitions Monday. It is Jelly and Uncrustables maker J.M. Smucker, which I think everyone calls Smuckers. They're yep. buying Hostess brands for $5.6 billion. Seems like a decent deal for for Hostess. Works out to $34.25 per share in a cash and stock transaction. Stock's been trading 25, 26 in recent months. It's been rumored a bit, but what do you think? Does this make sense? You know, the the Uncrustables and the jelly, you got the you got the Twinkies and the cupcakes. What do you think? Yeah, I think it fits. I mean, I think these are two companies. I think these are two sorts of concepts that that are fairly complementary. I mean, Hostess clearly a brand with a bit of a checkered past as far as a a company yeah. goes. And I think they went bankrupt. They declared bankrupt bankruptcy twice in in its history. Um, recently IPO'd again in 2015. Uh, it, in, in, interestingly, it's been a very good investment uh, since that um, IPO. But you know, I mean, this is this is a brand that makes I, I think a lot of us smile for nostalgic reasons and for nothing else. Um, but but when you look at the actual business, I mean, a compounded annual growth rate of 11.2 percent on the top line over the last five years. Uh, you compare that to something like a Smucker, in, in that same over that same stretch, you're looking at 2.4 percent growth there, and that's not surprising, right? Smucker is a is a very well established and in sort of um, quote unquote boring business, so to speak. So, uh, you know, you look at Smucker, the growth is nothing to write home about. I mean, it's not not a tremendous performer there for investors over the last several years. Organic growth becomes a little bit of a concern, and we've seen this story play out with several companies like this um, in in the recent past. Sometimes they just need to uh, resort to smart acquisitions in order to kind of keep that ball rolling and figure out ways to take that business to the next level. Um, with Smucker, I mean, financially speaking, the, the company is is well profitable, uh, well established, coverage ratio of around of around eight. So this is something that they clearly can afford. Um, I think then it just really depends on what they actually do with this acquisition. But but definitely a, a collection of strong brands to 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 play around with. Yeah, the strong brands thing. When when they did go bankrupt, I think it was in 2012. There was an outcry. People were so afraid that they were going to lose the Twinkie forever. <laughs> and so I think it's a bit, it's a big concern. I mean, yes. the Twinkie lasts forever, but uh, you know. And so Smucker, they're seeing uh, forecasting a net sale contribution of about 1.5 billion. Uh, based on seeing mid-single-digit uh, annual growth rate. So, looks like they're getting around 3,000 employees, some distribution facilities. There's going to be cost-cutting at some point, right? We know that. They've already talked a little bit about some of the synergies there. But what are the things you think are going to happen as far as prepackaged Smucker offerings? They've already been testing the shelf-stable, the shelf stable, Uncrustable. More Uncrustables. What other kinds of things, what other kind of synergies you see in here? Well, I mean, it does feel like as time goes on, for the for the American consumer at least, convenience just becomes more and more of a consideration, and and I think that's likely to continue with this deal. I mean, you know, the headline here for for Smucker. I mean, if you look at their investor investor relations 
page. I mean, the headline of this press announcement is that, that Smucker is acquiring Hostess brands to accelerate focus on convenient consumer occasions. And, and I'm not exactly sure what that means, but again, it, it kind of goes back to convenient, right? And that, I mean, there's nothing more convenient than this whole host of Hostess snacks. I mean, you're going to find them virtually anywhere and everywhere around the country. I mean, you can drive from South Carolina to California, and I, and I would imagine that any gas station you stop at along the way, you're going to find a nice assortment of those Hostess snacks. And so, I mean, from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I think that with Smucker, given the nature of their offerings, uh, convenience fits very well into their, into their uh, strategy. Um, it, you look at what Smucker's getting for for this deal beyond just the brands. I mean, you mentioned there is distribution, there's manufacturing that comes into play, and when it comes to big scale food, I mean, really at the end of the day, I mean, it, once you once you're making things that consumers want to buy, then it's just a matter of making sure you can make enough of it and get it as far and wide as you possibly can. And I think that this deal certainly plays into that with the distribution and manufacturing that they're getting. Yeah, yeah, and and you know it is it is a favorite road road trip snack, and you know for some people it's an everyday snack. But I was listening to the call about the the uh, about the um, acquisition, and one of the analysts brought up a question about people on uh, GLP one weight loss drugs like an Ozempic or something like that craving less sweet food. Is the rise of this kind of this existential threat for for snacking? I mean, it doesn't seem like it yet, but but could it be? I mean, anything's possible. It certainly could be. I think um, yeah, there's there's still a lot to be learned about these about these weight loss drugs, um, the longer term impacts, and exactly how they'll resonate with the broader consumer base. So I, I think there's still a lot we just don't know there. But but ultimately, I think you know at the end of the day, when it comes to to food, I mean, it, it's about giving consumers what they want, right? I mean, as long as you're giving consumers what they want, then that's the key. And so I think that you know, CEO Mark Smucker on the call there. I think he answered the question pretty well there, and that just you know talking about the multiple ways that consumers will want to continue to snack, and they'll continue to pay attention to that. And if they see some shift in consumer behavior, then they have the the ability to pivot and and change sort of the the the, the makeup of their snack portfolio, right? I mean, if if consumers are craving less sweet food, then they can ratchet that back a little bit, right? They can they can alter that. They can change things a little bit. And so I think still a lot to be learned from from the ultimate impact of these weight loss drugs, but at the end of the day, I do believe that the company will have an answer regardless what consumers actually want. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a few weeks ago, we had uh, Campbell's buying Sovos, which is the maker of Rouse and and some other things. And now we've got this. I know two two deals isn't necessarily a trend, but one of the things I'm looking at is uh, increase in private label consumption and and sort of like, do these brands have staying power? Are we going to see more of these acquisitions as maybe some of these uh, brands face some economic pressure? Yeah, I mean this. This was exactly what came to mind um, when 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 I saw this headline this morning. When you and I started talking about it in pre-production, you know, we did a show on the Campbell deal uh, just a little while back, and we talked about this even then. So yes, I do think this is another example of what we were thinking then in regard to consolidation in the industry. I mean, food is tough, right? Pricing can be exceptionally difficult, especially in inflationary times. And you know, it's not necessarily like a restaurant where you know a restaurant they can realize pricing 
increasing in growth more thanks to the experience, thanks to what they're actually doing with the food from a taste perspective. They can change menus up. Um, there, there's, there, there is obviously some, some brand power there. There's some loyalty levers they can pull there. Grocery, for, for lack of a better word, can, can be far more commoditized. Um, and, and so, to me, I mean, again, scale is something that really helps in this line of work. So whether you know they pursue the private label or the branded, I mean, I think we'll see as time goes on some of these brands that we were very familiar with um, growing up. I mean, some of them just some of them just fall off, right? Some of them they, they don't they don't live on forever. Some some do seem to have a little bit more uh, longevity than others. Um, but but ultimately, I think scale is what helps these companies compete. Uh, in this line of work. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's keep the food train going. Let's talk a little bit about the Instacart IPO because we've got an offer price now. So, company's going to set an offer price between $26 and $28. They're going to issue 22 million shares in total which is uh, 14.1 million new, 7.9 million existing being sold from shareholders. They want to raise uh, 616 million. It's you know this this valuation of uh, 7.9 billion. It's below the original valuation when they were talking about the IPO a couple of years ago. What are you thinking about the valuation now? Well, yeah, I mean you look at the valuation today, and let's just call it nine billion dollars. I mean that's significantly down from the. The thirty-nine billion dollar valuation this company had generated had garnered in twenty twenty-one, um, and I think it's fair, right? I mean, the mindset in twenty twenty-one was considerably different than it is today, yeah. um, and it's worth remembering as we look at some of these companies that we still own and like, you know. But the sentiment has shifted. It's not necessarily something fundamentally wrong with the business, but it's a reminder that valuation is something we need to keep in mind. You looking at the numbers when it comes to Instacart? Last year, they recorded $428 million of net income. Uh, this year, $242 million the first six months of the year. So, let's just call it, let's just say they're going to generate $480 million of net income this year. I mean, that puts the company, if they IPO around this price, puts them around 20 ish times earnings, which I think is a little bit more interesting. Um, to me, you know, the growth question, I think, is, is still. What is up in the air, right? We talked about in, in regard to that Instacart IPO a, a couple of weeks back, right? I think one of the one of the interesting parts about this particular market is that grocery is still so uh, so, so, so immature, right? I mean, it's not a mature market. There's still so much untapped opportunity in the grocery delivery space. That's the argument, right? And if you buy that argument, if you believe in that, then then you're believing that growth will persist with a company like Instacart, and that makes this valuation look far more attractive uh, than, than even just a couple of years ago. And I think the counter to that is, you know, I, mean, I look at these delivery companies, and I mean, I, I put Instacart in the same. Uh, sort of category there is your DoorDashes and, and, and Grubhubs and whatnot, and, and, and Uber Eats even to an extent. I mean, they're very convenient, right? But I don't find them to be so compelling. You know, the one thing I've noticed is the more and more that I, I, I look at these delivery apps, and I don't necessarily use them as much because I do start to notice some serious pricing disparities. And and I, I that can only go so far, right? I think convenience is something the, the consumer values. But that doesn't mean price be damned, <laughs> and so I just yes. don't think they can push those prices up uh, to infinity, and, and that is something that is going to play out on their model. So uh, definitely a, a more attractive looking opportunity, at least at today's valuation, versus just a couple of years ago. But I'm not necessarily saying I give it the green light yet either. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, let's ra- let's wrap up by talking about traditional grocery. Uh, Kroger reported their their results on Friday. They're the biggest pure play grocer. Uh, wanted to talk a little bit about their merger with Albertsons because this has been going on for a long time. They announced a key step as part of their earnings. They're going to sell over 400 stores, some distribution centers. They're selling private label brands to CNS Wholesale. The part that I thought was really interesting was that they're selling the licensing rights to Albertsons in Arizona, California, Colorado, and Wyoming. That feels like a lot of concessions to me. They, it seems like they really want this deal to go through, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is this is really making me think just of, of something like Microsoft and Activision Blizzard, right? I mean, obviously, two very different markets. We're talking about grocery versus tech, essentially. But I mean, I, I do think that that when you look at the bigger picture, I mean, there's just a lot of political will right now in certain pockets to fight big mergers. By the same token, you know, you hear Kroger's rationale. I mean, they'll say that they really need this deal to go through in order to be able to com- compete with the likes of of Amazon and and Walmart. And so, you know, it goes to show number one the investments that Walmart has made all of these years into grocery, understanding that that is a, a fairly reliable, uh, if 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 you know, if not low margin market. Uh, Amazon making the acquisition of Whole Foods back in the day, uh, they did that before. It, you know, it, it was really in a, in a period of time where it'd be questioned so much. I, I think you know, if if they tried to push that that deal through today, it, it would have been. Um, you know, regulators would have taken a much closer look at it, but I think when it comes down to this deal, I feel like they're on the right track. I think it just boils down to to the concessions and what ultimately constitutes enough in order to make this go through. But it does feel like uh, leadership with Kroger is more than willing to make whatever concessions are needed to make this deal go through. And we're seeing consolidation again on the Aldi side too. I think right, Aldi. Uh, Snapping up some of the uh, the Win Dixie franchises yep. there. Uh, so, so yeah, absolutely. Going back to kind of that consolidation theme, uh, I, I don't think that's anything that's slowing down anytime soon in this space. No, absolutely not. And you you mentioned Amazon and Walmart, and they're they those two companies are both doing something that Kroger is doing, which is getting deeper and deeper into healthcare. So Kroger's got Kroger Health. They have about 225 clinics. They've got pharmacies in most of their stores, so that's like 2,000 or so pharmacies. They ended their partnership with Express Scripts last year. Um, I'm wondering, as I consider Walmart, Kroger, I'm, I think I'm starting to have to consider the healthcare part of this business more and more. Yeah, I think it's something worth keeping an eye on. I think for something like Kroger, it's probably more incremental than anything else. It's it's yeah. definitely a value add for consumers. And and like with any of these grocery concepts, I mean, you have your Kroger card or whatever it may be. Any kind of loyalty program that can help uh, encourage consumers to come in there and do more of their shopping um, at the store. I mean. I, you look at Kroger. I mean, it, it, the footprint they have compared to something like a CVS, for example. Right? I mean, you look at CVS with something. I mean, close to ten thousand stores. Or Kroger at the end of uh, January of this year, they were operating somewhere in their neighborhood, just over twenty-seven hundred stores total. If you look at the pharmacy uh, division as a percentage of overall sales for Kroger in twenty twenty, it was eight point six percent of overall revenue. Uh, and then 2022, that bumped up a little bit to nine percent, and that's been nine percent the last couple of years. And, and it's worth noting there's some specialty pharma that makes up another small little uh, bit of, of that revenue, and that's that's kind of con- constituted in the other bucket. But generally speaking, it's essentially nine percent of the business, so it's not insignificant. 
Right. It's also not something that ultimately is going to make this business, right? So I think it's a nice value add. I think it's a nice incremental boost, but I don't know that it's something that they really need to overinvest in because of all of the different options that are out there today. Makes sense. Thank you for breaking this down for me today, Jason. Thank you. Wood decks are increasingly being phased out for more long-lasting alternatives. I sat down with Jesse Singh, CEO of ASIC, to discuss his company's long-term plans for growth. Let's talk about ASIC and the business and uh, your competition. So, you're a top competitor in uh, in decking with Trex, which is in also uh, in the composite decking space. I, I love this because it's it's sort of like Coke, Pepsi, or maybe more accurately, Lowe's and Home Depot. But I know one difference uh, between you is that you're really focused on the pros relationship uh, so far versus marketing to the consumer. So. How does one market to to the pros? Because that's a very that's that seems like a tougher market to reach sometimes. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll just give you a couple of data points that might help uh, put things in perspective. Uh, as you look at the two of us, as you point out, you know we're probably a bit more like Pepsi in that you know we we have the brown water, but we also have a snack foods division, which is our exteriors business. So in that respect, we've got two platforms uh, that play into the market. Um, exteriors is about a third of our residential business, and deck, rail, and accessories is um, about two thirds. So so that gives us uh, enormous strength in the market. And then as you look at our progression, we talked about starting 25 years ago in this market. Over an extended period of time, we built up a really strong network of uh, contractors, professional dealers, and channel partners that have allowed us to uh, to penetrate the market. And more specifically, we operate with 200 um, salespeople, direct salespeople that are working with contractors, working with architects, and, and working with our channel partners. Uh, and that's actually um, uh, given some recent disclosure yesterday about double the size uh, of, uh, of our competitors. So we are heavily focused on uh, driving growth in the pro. And then if you just step back and you look at the differences in our share position, we're relatively equal uh, on the composite decking side in the pro. Um, as you mentioned, our main area that we are underpenetrated is in the retail side of the business, although that has been accretive growth. And then, and then if you step back and say, what does it take to win in this market? You're marketing to millions of consumers that are buying from tens of thousands of contractors that are buying from thousands of channel partners. And and for us, it's really, really important uh, to cover the whole. And I'll leave you with one thing on the consumer side. As we have recently, over the last five years, continued to invest on the consumer, the TimberTech brand has continued to show very, very strong um, elevation in the marketplace, and we continue to gain traction. I, I think there's only two of us that market aggressively uh, to the consumer. You know, we ran an ad on on uh, during the NBA Finals. Uh, we continue to invest on the consumer side, but as you say, that's on top of an enormous strength um, uh, within the pro. And, and I'll leave you the other thing on the pro, as I highlighted earlier, by having these two divisions, exteriors and deck rail and accessories, it gives us enormous strength in that we're able to offer a contractor and a pro dealer and a retailer um, a broader offering that fits within what they need. So, looking to the future, do you think you'll be doing more consumer marketing with, with the TimberTech brand? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we've elevated it. Uh, we've got the Timber Tech Championship, which is a golf event we've we've been sponsoring over the last few years. And as you look at, you know, digital metrics, brand metrics, what you would see is very aggressive step up on our side relative to consumer oriented metrics. And we would expect that to, uh, to continue to progress. Well, I think that everyone sort of understands the the value of composite decking, but let's talk a little bit about the the exteriors you mentioned, railings, uh, uh, cladding, siding, things like that. Are are you expecting those areas to grow over time? Yeah, absolutely. So if you, if you think about the macro value proposition of our company, it's to take recycled materials and replace wood on the outside of houses. That that there, there's a fundamental growth platform there, and of course on the composite decking side um, and decking in general. By the way, we 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 view it more as synthetic decking. Sometimes we have two different decking lines. We've got a PVC decking line. We're the only player with um, substantial strength in two different lines. Uh, that are both made out of recycled material. So our definition of decking is broader, but however you define it, 75% of the market is wood. It is very similar in the exterior. So if you think about exterior trim, 40 plus percent of that market is wood. And every day that goes by, we are working with contractors and consumers to have them convert. And if you think about the the dynamic, it's the exact same issue, right? Where if you think about what makes a house look um, aged, it's the trim, paint peeling, you know, not looking right. And I happen to be in an old house right now. And, and prior to us converting everything to ASAC, uh, when it was wood, we had a month, an annual budget of a painter that would come out and scrape and paint and fix it. And it's the exact same value proposition. Because of that, it gives us a very similar margin profile, a very similar uh, growth profile. I think one of the differences that's a positive is there's actually more adjacent space in the exteriors business. So you think about trim, you can move into niche siding, you start thinking about um, other cladding on the outside of houses. Uh, where that value proposition works. And, and our strength in the market, the top two brands, Azac and Versatech in the market, give us an opportunity to continue to really drive um, uh, growth in that area. So they are both equally uh, growing and have equal uh, margins and profitability. I, I love that you are using your own product in your home. That, that is fantastic. Uh, you mentioned two types of decking, though. Uh, can you break that down for us a little bit? Yeah, so um, if you think about the composite decking overall, typically it has the, the solution has been uh, a combination of recycled polyethylene and wood flour mixed and then uh, wrapped with a uh, uh, with an outside that gives it the aesthetics. And that has been, you know, our competitors growth trajectory and most of our competitors growth trajectory. We have that technology. And we continue to be the uh, the leader in the aesthetics on that technology. But we also have another technology, which is Recycle PVC. Uh, we're the largest vertically integrated uh, recycler um, in the U.S., perhaps in the planet, uh, where we do our own PVC recycling. We take back siding. Uh, we take back uh, PVC pipe, anything that's out there that needs, that's going to a landfill that's PVC. We take that, we process it, we make a 
that goes into the inside of, of the PVC deck board, and then it is wrapped again. There are significant benefits to this um, recycled PVC technology in that it is cooler, it is inherently cooler, it typically is 20 to 30% cooler than a composite board, and it is also inherently flame retardant. So we're, you know, we're the major player in the market with a class A flame spread product. And then lastly, we're able to get unique aesthetics that look a lot more like high-end products. So if you look at the way our portfolio stacks up, we've got composite products and um, these PVC products. And in the premium part of the market, we define the market in decking as good, better, best, premium. In that premium segment uh, right now, our, our PVC products and in the market in general are incredibly strong and have a really unique position. Last question for you. Uh, we're, you know, we're long-term investors at The Fool. Uh, what, what do you hope to see from ASIC in five years? Yeah, I'm really proud of, of the team and, you know, over the last five-year journey um, uh, that we've really been able to uh, you know, build out the company. From 2019 to now, we're 80% bigger, 78% bigger uh, through uh, 2022 um, on the residential side. So that, that's meaningful growth. We've given targets, so I can give you a financial view. We'll be at you know twenty-seven plus percent EBITDA margins. You know we'll be in the range of of generating six hundred million of of EBITDA. Uh, but I think more importantly for us as a company, you know we want to be known as the company that uses recycled material and as the player that's recycled that's using that material to replace wood. Uh, to create a better aesthetic on the outside of homes. And, and if I sit here in five years, um, there's going to be a number of product areas that we play in on the outside of homes that we are not communicating now uh, where we are bigger players. So we love our core. You know, we're going to go from 25% composites to, you know, hopefully closer to 50% in decking, uh, but but that'll be a part of the story, and I would expect us to continue to be the proud uh, player that um, is the recycler that drives wood conversion on the outside of homes, and, and we've got a bunch of happy consumers because they don't have to paint, stain, and, uh, uh, and maintain. So uh, we're really excited about the future, and I, I'll tell you personally, there, there's very few places you can work where you make an impact by, you know, by taking stuff out of the landfill. And, and I'm excited by what that model might yield us. I love it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Bullard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.